This is Chapter 33 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we'll hear from Brendan Matthews, whose richly detailed debut novel centers around the 1939 World's Fair. Then, our Pat Farnack speaks with a young athlete who had to give up the sport he loved because of a debilitating disease. Brendan Matthews' debut novel, that's Matthews with one T, is called The World of Tomorrow and borrows its name from the theme of the 1939 World's Fair, which serves as the backdrop to his colorful and character-driven narrative. I spoke with him about his inspiration. Your book is an immigrant story, the story of the American dream. There's cops and robbers. It's even a little bit of a ghost story, all set with the backdrop of the 1939 World's Fair. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure, that's actually a pretty good summary of what's going on. But I wanted to write a uh, a big um, immigrant novel uh, full of dreamers and strivers and people who've come to New York in search of something and then put them all in motion together and see um, what the cost of getting getting those dreams uh, to come to life are. So it's set in 1939. It takes place during one week in June. The World's Fair started in April. The Second World War starts in September. And so I wanted to set it right between those moments of great hope and this looming catastrophe. And for a lot of the characters in the novel, they find themselves in a sort of similar position, um, hoping for something good to happen, but, but fearing that, uh, that the worst is in store for them. Why the World's Fair as the setting? Well, it was this moment of, of great hope. It was uh, projected a vision for Depression-era America of great plenty and uh, technological advance and a world that was going to be shinier and brighter and easier than the one that they all knew. But at the same time, it was embedded with all of these controversies and contradictions. The the shiny future that it promised um, was only going to come, I mean, no one knew at the time, but it was only going to come after um, the horror of the war that was in front of them. And even uh, the, the fair itself had these international pavilions that were meant to bring together the countries of the world. So Italy was there and Japan was there, the Soviet Union, the British Empire, the U.S., all in one place. Uh, and a year later, when the fair restarted for the summer of 1940, um, many of those countries didn't return. They were already embroiled in the war. And so the, the promise of a future of peace and prosperity um, quickly faded in the, the light of reality. So that was an interesting time to think about um, how it represented so much hope, but also um, served to as a, um, as a case in miniature for the direction the world was going. What was the research like for this book? I imagine you had to do a lot of that. I did, and it was really fascinating. You know, some of it was looking at photos um, from the fair or from uh, New York in 1939. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I found that there were uh, color home movies taken of the fair, which was a real revelation because we think of that period as a black and white era. And so much of what we see of the 1930s um, is black and white photos and old films. And to see those moments in color, to see what people wore and the way they looked and how bright New York City was in the 30s um, was a real eye-opener for me. I also listened to a lot of music. There's a, a number of characters in the book who are involved in the big band jazz world. So I spent a lot of time immersed in, uh, in 1930s era jazz and uh, falling in love with Count Basie and some of the other music that came out of that period. And you really do uh, give us a taste of what New York must have been like. You don't focus on one neighborhood. We hopscotch all over Manhattan. We go to the Bronx. They're wearing Harlem. Also at the Plaza Hotel. Are these places you were familiar with? Did you just become familiar with them in your research or they're just there because of the characters you created? Well, in some ways because of the characters. Um, I mean, I'm from a Bronx family. And so I felt like I wanted the Bronx to get its due. 
uh, in the book. <laughs> my, my, there's so much written about Manhattan, and even the focus shifts to Brooklyn and places. And uh, my, uh, my, my grandfather came over from Ireland in 1929, and uh, with dreams of being a big band arranger. Um, and that side of the family actually settled in Queens for a while. They were in Sunnyside. But my mom's fa- side is all from the Bronx. They're from Throg's Neck. And although Throg's Neck doesn't play a role in the book, I wanted to situate these characters um, in the Bronx and uh, explore what that world was like for them. And particularly for those who were, were living in the Bronx, but coming into into Manhattan, coming into Harlem and coming into Midtown every day uh, to find work as musicians and to uh, see what that world of uh, nightclubs and, and dance halls was like for them. Um, but I really enjoyed that uh, idea of exploring New York, of going from the meatpacking district to the Bowery and back up to Midtown, up to Harlem, and to see how that allowed me to bring a really large cast of characters together. Because each of the characters really has their own main plot, their own main story um, that they're interested in pursuing, and they come in contact with all these other characters. So each of those places sort of represented one of the, the main plots of the novel. You've written short stories before. What was it like to write a book that clocks in at over 500 pages? It took me a while just to figure out the rhythm of the novel as opposed to the short story. With a short story, I felt like I could always hold the whole thing in my head. Uh, Even when I wasn't sitting down at the desk working on it, I could sort of see everything that I had, and I could turn it over and and think about it and um, sort of rewrite even when I was just, uh, you know, driving the kids to school. But with a novel, um, I've found often that uh, you just keep going and going, and you can never take the whole thing in. Um, It was a bit like uh, setting sail and looking out behind you and seeing you couldn't see land anymore, and there was nothing in front of you but ocean. But if you just kept sailing, you you had to have faith that you'd, you'd hit something sooner or later. I've read a couple of reviews that have compared your book to E.L. Doctorow, whether it's Ragtime or his book, World's Fair. How does that kind of comparison make you feel? Oh, it's staggering. I mean, Doctorow was one of the giants, and, and I'm a huge fan of Doctorow's work. Ragtime in particular uh, works like Billy Bathgate and Book of Daniel. I mean, these are major American novels by somebody at the absolute top of his game. So um, it's um, it's flattering when someone puts you in that category or even even compares you in some way. You know, one of the reviews said, well, it's not Doctorow, but <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And I thought, well, who is Doctorow? I mean, who else other than Yale Doctorow is Doctorow? He was just a, a great chronicler of of America at t- particular moments in history, and um, someone whose work Ragtime was definitely in my head all the time. The ability to to write this epic novel, to populate it with real people and real historical figures, and to keep it moving at such a clip. Um, I, I looked to Ragtime over and over again, and knew I would always fall short. But I think it's important to have big goals. So I was I was going after that one. I know for some people, when they look at a book that's as large as The World of Tomorrow, they find it daunting. But I have to say, I moved through it very quickly, and it did not feel long at all. I heard the same thing from my brothers when I gave them a copy of the book. I have three brothers, and I think they were excited but dreading a bit (laughs) to finally have to dig into this thing I've been working on for such a long time. And uh, one of them said to me about a week after I gave him the book... um, you know, he was, it didn't read long. I was shocked how quickly he went through it. And uh, I think that, so that was good to hear too, that people are, are getting immersed in the characters, but I wanted the book to have a really tight narrative line. I wanted there to be a, a pacing kind of like a thriller, but also kind of like a, a Count Basie song where you get a chance to hear all these solos, but the whole thing is always just moving and moving and moving. So. I like that description and, and thinking back on it, 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 I can understand where that comes from. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I didn't really know much about big band music before I went into the book. I'm a big fan of 50s era jazz, but I didn't know the 30s era as well. And the thing I really loved about uh, about Basie in particular was the way he let every one of these musicians have a solo. So everyone got their moment in the spotlight, but they were all still part of the band. And the whole thing would really swing. And I wanted a novel that could swing like that. I think you accomplished that. And I just want to ask one final question. The last sure. chapter of your book is titled Home. And you present a couple of different definitions of what that can be. What does home mean to you? Um, that's a big question. Uh, I guess it's the place that you come back to. The place for some characters, it's a place of rest, and for some of the characters, it's um, a promise of uh, you know a place you go to after all the hard work. It's also a place where your obligations are. And I think one of the things the book tries to explore is. What are some characters willing to do? What are some characters forced to do, required to do? What do they do out of love? Uh, what do they do out of duty or obligation? I think those are all questions that are really tied up in, in that idea of home. But hopefully, for some of the characters, it's also a place where after the long journey of the book, they can, they can find some quiet. Well, Brandon Matthews, author of The World of Tomorrow, thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Rheumatoid arthritis affects three times as many women as men. It's that stat that led former baseball player Emil DeAndres to refer to RA as an old woman's disease in his memoir, Hard to Grip, a memoir of youth, baseball, and chronic illness. He told his story to our Pat Farnack. What a story you have to tell. Begin, if you would, with how much you loved baseball. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, uh, and this was in the late 80s, and um, you know, my love for the game sort of started when my dad would take me to, uh, you know, Giants and A's games as a kid. Uh, and at that time in the Bay Area, it, you know, both teams were, were pretty good. You, you know, even in, in 89, the Giants and the A's played each other in the World Series. So there was no shortage of heroes to latch on to um, as a kid. So, you know, I started idolizing those guys and then mimicking their batting stances when I watched them on TV and stuff like that. And it just kind of grew from there. You had some odd physical glitches, though, even as a kid, didn't you? Uh, yeah, you know, in high school, I experienced some interesting swelling uh, that kind of kept me off the baseball field uh, every once in a while. But it never really, it never got so intense. And it, all, it would always just go away when I needed it to. It was really interesting. It was like my body knew when to sort of, to, to stop messing around a little bit. So I never missed a start uh, in high school or anything like that. But I did, you know, there'd be times when I would wake up and it was, you know, hard to lift my arm and stuff like that. But it would always go away. Did you hear later on when you uh, knew what you had, do you think that was the beginning of uh, RA for you? You know, I I really do think it was my body sort of announcing its presence, yes, because uh, my mom also underwent similar symptoms uh, throughout her life, and she had a sort of like a developing career as a, um, as a clarinetist, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she was forced to let go of that career because she had sort of, you know, ailments in, in her wrist. So, you know, the writing was kind of on the wall. It was like all these little breadcrumbs sort of leading to the, a conclusion. Uh, but at the time, I was, you know, an adolescent and yeah. uh, sort of in the physical prime of my life. But uh, I, I didn't really, I kind of conveniently ignored these signs. 
You decided to go to college and to play ball in Hawaii. Um, it was a free ride for you, wasn't it, financially? Yeah, it ended up being that way. It uh, it came way late in my senior season. I'd already sort of settled with, with playing at a local community college. It actually had, ended up being the community college I teach at now. But um, <laughs> I... I was gonna, I was gonna go play out there, and um, Hawaii called with a scholarship. You know, pretty much like on my graduation day. <laughs> Perfect. Now you began quite a slide though during college with, uh, especially with those drinking bouts and blackouts. Was it just because you thought that ball players acted like that, or why did why did you act that way? Do you think now, looking back? Gosh, that's. I mean, that's a really interesting thing to look back on you know retrospectively um it is definitely part of the culture you know uh it's definitely sort of at the time uh it seems at least to be a rite of passage um and when you're sort of you're in this sort of climate of you know testosterone and adolescence and competition um alcohol just seems to sort of always end up playing a role in some way or the other so yeah um it definitely was a part of a part of my uh, my college experience, um, <laughs> and I I felt I was I felt I uh, I ought to articulate it, you know, somewhat accurately in the book. I I I I thought you really did. I it was like I was there. It was uh, uh, very well done. But you know, you weren't completely gone because you recognized what a godsend candle was. So you weren't completely off the charts. No, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it can be lonely at times in college uh, when you're partying so much and, you know, you know, you wake up the next day and you're hurting and you're sort of just like, God, what, what, what was I thinking? So when Kendall came along, um, who's now my wife, who's yes. actually sitting, sitting just about a few yards away from me at this airport, <laughs> um, when, when she came along, I, I, I knew I had the sense enough to know that this was something very special. This was something that, whether or not I knew it, I had been looking for. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Your, your diagnosis of RA wasn't really a straightforward diagnosis at first, at least as you write about it in the book with uh, Dr. Sherry. Um, is this usual? Have you since found out with uh, people who have RA? And would you describe some of the symptoms that finally sent you to Dr. Sherry? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's a good point. You know, there is no black and white diagnosis of RA. There's no blood test you take that says, yes, you have it. It's not like a pregnancy test, for, for example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, they, they kind of gather symptoms and they, they do blood tests and they just sort of take take an inventory on your body and sort of almost like it's like a judicial system. They almost just decide, you know, if, if, yeah. it's, if you have it or not. And, um, you know, for me, um, it started in my left elbow, my pitching elbow, the first symptom I, I had, and it was like a, a, a slight burning sensation. It felt like if someone was holding a small candle up to it or a small flame up to it. And so because I'd pitched my whole life and because, you know, I'd, I'd gone through all kinds of little injuries and little dings and bruises here and there. This just felt like another thing that I would play through. And so um, when they told me, you know, you, know, you need to – well, what happened was I, a cortisone shot did not work. And then, yeah. you know, the swelling spread to my left knuckles, and then it spread to my right wrist, and then it began to spread to my left knee. And my sports doctor knew that 
this is this is not an ordinary sports injury. Yeah. So uh, that was when I was referred to Dr. Sherry. Isn't it, I don't know if incredible is the right word, but uh, you put it that uh, uh, you're such a man's man at that time. Um, and I'm sure now, too. <laughs> but such a man's man such as yourself would get what you called an old lady's disease. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, it sounds a bit harsh upon first hearing that that, uh, that <laughs> assessment, but really, like, the statistics are that rheumatoid arthritis is, you know, uh, old, old, an old woman's disease. Like, women yeah. who are going through menopause typically get the disease. So, bearing that in mind, when I was, like, a tough-headed, uh, you know, at, uh, early adult uh, who had just got a professional baseball contract, the last thing I thought possible was that I could suddenly my body, my body would start to, you know, wither away. Like I felt as, as invincible as I ever could. So, um, I went through a phase of, of denial there for about four or five months where I, I refused to accept that diagnosis. And, uh, I refused to take the medication they had prescribed me because I thought by taking that medication that admitted, uh, to the world sort of, or, or to myself that I, that I had that disease. So, and by not taking the meds for those first few months, it allowed to, the, the disease to sort of reign freely in my body, and it, 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 took, it, took, it took a toll. You did get your act together, though, and it sounds um, like you have the best of both worlds now. Um, I, I, I'm so glad you didn't go to Belgium in so many ways. <laughs> uh, yeah. What do you say about that? Yeah, you know, I was, so I'm good friends still with, uh, with a professor of mine uh, who, who actually plays a role in the book. Uh, who sort of taught me to to have a love for for writing. Um, And when I go to Hawaii, I stay with with him and his family. His son was born on my birthday uh, when I was a senior in college. So we have a pretty, you know, strong connection. And one time we were out there sitting on his porch, and he actually was was bold enough to say that I was lucky that I got RA, which is kind of what you're uh, you're implying by saying, you know, it's good I didn't go to Belgium. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way um because i've been i've been so concentrated on writing the book and rendering a realistic depiction of this sort of terrible disease that i hadn't really thought about all the the pros but yeah you know um i would not have you know written a book i would not have my wife kendall right now i would not have a really enjoyable job as a as an english teacher at a at a college down south so there's a lot of good that came from this that i that I certainly recognize on a daily basis. Well, I'm glad you do, because it sounds like you, you really have a wonderful life. Um, how is uh, your rheumatoid arthritis now? It's, um, you know, it's kept at bay. I've, I've, <laughs> I've since accepted that I do have this disease, and thus <laughs> I take the medication. And the, the medication is, is, is helpful. It's very... It's very effective for me. It affects different people on different levels, but for me, it keeps me able-bodied and stabilized, and for the most part, you know, um, pain-free. And since, because I refuse to take the meds initially, I know how bad this disease can get. So I'm very, I very much acknowledge its power, and I and I fear it. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of take my meds on schedule and. Um, and appreciate the things that the meds allow me to do. Like I can, I can go to the gym. I lift weights; they're just not as heavy as they used to be. Uh, 
I throw batting practice to my to the to the kids that I coach in baseball, and mm-hmm. so from like 30 feet away, I still get to you know feel like I'm a pitcher still. But uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's I'm, I'm I'm functional, just not to the level I I was without the disease. Well, thank you for uh, for taking the time. Uh, you just got off a red eye flight. That I really appreciate that. And we've been talking with Emil D. Andreas. Uh, his book is Hard to Grip: A Memoir of Youth, Baseball, and Chronic Illness. Thanks for joining us, Emil. Thanks, Pat. And that's this week's podcast. If you like what we're doing, let us know by emailing us at books at wcbs880.com. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.